Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. You're about to listen to a historical episode of Dark Poutine. After episode 149, you will find Scott is no longer with the show. In an effort to maintain continuity and offer listeners as many episodes as possible, we are leaving the episodes in which he co-hosted intact. Thank you. Welcome to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown, creator and host. With me as usual is my good friend and co-host, Scott Hemingway. Say hello, Scott. Oh, oh, hello, Scott. Just on the money every single time. Right? Every time. Right? If it wasn't written down, though, I'd be screwed. Probably. Yeah. It would be lost. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. The content and discussion in this podcast is often graphic and intense. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Strongly. We're not experts on any of the topics we present, nor are we professional journalists. We're just two regular Canadians interested in crime and the darker side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque. Grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. Chomp, chomp, chomp. Om nom nom. So this is episode 43. If you remember how episode 42 opened, it opened with a tease. It did, yeah, yeah. And it said yeah. that we were going to have something happen this past week. So this week we'd like to announce. It's going to happen next week. <laughs> the announcement had to be put on hold, but be sure that it is coming. So we're not just teasing you to listen to the next show and the next show or we may be well i mean it is an effective it, uh, yeah it does seem to work yeah yeah so uh maybe we will maybe we will i'm told it'll be next week <laughs> anyway on with the show The subject of this episode has had much speculation around it, over many books, podcasts, and worldwide media coverage. Many of you will have read or heard something about this case. We'll do our best to bring a fresh take on a much-discussed topic. For those of you unfamiliar, this case will leave you scratching your head, and perhaps even a little disturbed. Cindy James was a 44-year-old nurse and social worker who disappeared from a mall in Richmond, B.C. in the summer of 1989. Two weeks later, Cindy's body was discovered by a construction worker among the overgrown weeds near an abandoned house just over a kilometer from where she'd vanished. The prior six and a half years were fraught with anxiety for Cindy and her family, who also feared for her. Cindy reported over 100 instances of stalking by an as-yet-unidentified assailant. She had received threatening phone calls and notes both at work and at home, 
Her house was vandalized and broken into numerous times. Cindy even reported being brutally assaulted on at least seven occasions by a man or men whose faces or face she'd never seen. Police responded to each of Cindy's reports, but evidence was sparse in some cases and non-existent in others. They had only Cindy's word that these things had actually occurred. Police and some others began to treat Cindy as though she were crazy. Some thought she was doing it all to herself. All this would later play a part in what has become, in our opinion, one of the most fascinating cold cases, not only in BC but globally as well. What happened to Cindy James? Let's have a look. I'm well versed in this case and I have my feelings, but it is a rabbit hole of a, of a topic. It definitely is. And we will not be able to talk about everything tonight and I may have missed something. However, if I did, don't bother emailing me about it because <laughs> this is the only show we're going to do on this. That's the problem with rabbit holes is that there are so many different beliefs and theories and they will never end. So all you can do is create your best version of what you believe to be the facts. Cindy's parents, Tilly and Otto Hack, were married on March 5, 1942, only a few months after meeting at the Lutheran church that their families were attending. Cindy's older brother Doug was born in 1943. Cindy followed in 1944 in Ontario, where Otto had been stationed in the military. After World War II, Otto was discharged from the Medical Corps of the Canadian Armed Forces, and the family moved to Vancouver so Otto could attend UBC. Hmm. He wanted to be a doctor at that point, but... That wasn't in the cards, so he went on to get a BA and then a BED. What's a BED? A Bachelor of Education. Oh, he sounds like bed. I've got a BED. <laughs> yeah, I sleep in mine. Otto began teaching at Vancouver's King Edward Secondary School on West 12th in 1946. Oh, well, I've driven by that school many, many, many a time. The Hacks had two more children in the 1940s, Marlene in 46 and Roger in 1949. Also in 1949, one of Otto's wartime buddies came calling with an opportunity for Otto to come back to the military in a training capacity, which he did. Mm -hmm. This meant that the Hacks were uprooted from time to time as Otto was transferred to different postings across the country. That's got to be a tough life. I know a few Canadian soldiers' families who have been moved many, many times. Yeah. It's tough for the kids. Absolutely. I've had many a conversation with friends who've been through that, and it's not easy for sure. Cindy took to her role of older sister passionately. She protected her siblings as much as she could, even taking the blame from time to time for things that her brothers and sisters had done. I don't think that's ever happened in my house. <laughs> Mine neither. <laughs> and I was the older brother. <laughs> I was the younger. Yeah, I was a bit of a dink. <laughs> Cindy was studious and loved books. Also something that didn't happen in your house. <laughs> no, everybody else did. I just didn't. <laughs> Early on, she became determined that she was going to be a nurse when she grew up. Cindy claimed she was discouraged from having friends of her own, and she wasn't allowed to have any that she did make to come over and visit. Well, that sucks. As the hacks moved so much, it seemed impossible to really connect with anyone anyway. Yeah, that's part of the challenge. You make some friends, and then 
you're gone. A couple months later, or yep. a year later, you're gone. Cindy said that her father was a strict disciplinarian who wanted everything just so. As she was the oldest daughter, she had the bulk of chores, making her feel nothing more than a live-in housekeeper and rarely a daughter. Mm. Otto often pointed out that the housework wasn't done to his standards and he would berate Cindy for it. Mm. Tilly couldn't defend them as, according to the girls, Otto treated her like an underling as well. He ruled the roost, especially when he was drinking. There's that thing again. Yeah, yeah. Cindy couldn't relax around her parents. As she grew, her anxiety grew too. In 1962, Otto's desire for an international posting was satisfied. The family was going to France. Oh, oh, that's a dramatic change. Yes, absolutely. They were living in Ottawa at the time, and Cindy, who was just graduating from high school, had a boyfriend named Peter. So she wanted to stay in Ottawa so she could be together with Peter. Yeah, makes sense. Absolutely. Otto thought that this was a bad idea until he just went along. Cindy wasn't staying in Ottawa, nor was she going to France with the family. Oh. Cindy was devastated. How old was she at this point? 18. 18, okay, yeah. Cindy was told, like it or not, she was going to take the nursing program at Vancouver General Hospital. She liked the nursing part, she just didn't like the Vancouver part. Oh, interesting. Back then, you would uh, you study at the hospital itself? Yes, they used to have a nurse's residence right there, um... Actually, that building, I believe, is now gone. But when I was a security guard there, it was empty because the nursing program had ended. Yeah. And it was apparently one of the most haunted buildings in Vancouver. And and I can tell lots of stories about it. And we might do so on the Halloween episode that's coming up. Oh, what's that? Did you hear that? Halloween episode. I, I think Mike's teasing again. Cindy was too young to start the program and the fall classes had already been filled. She went to work at VGH as a nurse's aide until the next class intake. Hmm. Also, after a big gap, most likely due to relative instability of military life, in the 1960s, Tilly and Otto had two more kids. Oh, wow. Melanie and Ken. So while they were away, she she had another, siblings. Another that she, sister and she, a brother, yep. Oh, interesting. That's got to be a odd dynamic. Even though still upset with her parents, Cindy did well in nursing school, maintaining a B to B plus average. Cindy visited the hacks overseas during holidays in summers in the summers of 1963, 64, and 65. So I guess Europe would have been the place to be in, in at that time yeah. to do their thing. And yeah, yeah. And as long as you get to visit, not have to live there away from your friends and such. That's right. She, she probably enjoyed that part. Something odd happened after Cindy's visit in 1965. Oh. Otto and Tilly received a 10-page letter from Cindy outlining the suicide of a fiancé of hers whom they'd not yet heard about. Oh. She hadn't mentioned him on her trip, nor had she behaved in any way out of character to indicate something was wrong. Yeah, that's quite odd. A a fiancé you think you would. Like maybe a new boyfriend you're not going to tell your folks and stuff, but a fiancé. You think. You'd think. Cindy claimed the young man, a medical intern, had disappeared while skiing on Grouse Mountain. Shortly after hearing, he had terminal cancer. Okay. She said a search party was formed and the young man was found in a remote cabin deceased from a self-inflicted shotgun blast to the head. Self-inflicted shotgun blast to the head. Yeah, well, he had terminal cancer, so... He took himself out before the camp. Yeah, yeah. Uh, intense. Even though Cindy's brother Doug had visited her many times in Vancouver, he'd never heard of or met this mysterious fiancé either. Hmm. 
things just didn't seem to add up, but she was adamant. So this story was bizarre right from the get-go. Yeah, they it didn't make sense to them. Yeah. Yeah, well I I mean like the whole her whole the story of Cindy as an adult, yes. Yeah. Interesting, right? Yeah, very. In 1965, she would have been 21. Yep. It was also in the summer of 65 when this pretty blonde 21-year-old nurse, Cindy, met a good-looking 39-year-old psychiatrist named Roy Makepeace. Like, you can't go wrong with Makepeace. You got to make peace. Well, there is meta-world peace in basketball, right. but I digress. <laughs> Roy was miserable at home with his wife, and Cindy <laughs> was just a thing to take his mind off his domestic woes. I see this going great. Roy, quote, helped Cindy study, and in short order, the two were emotionally and sexually involved with each other. Anatomy, Mike. It's part of uh, nursing. Anatomy. Yeah. <laughs> they kept the affair hush-hush, not even telling her family, as this kind of thing was not allowed according to hospital policy either. Oh, oh I would imagine not, yeah. She also rightfully thought that her dad, Otto, would never approve of her dating an older married man. Roy and his wife divorced on the grounds of adultery in 1966, allowing Cindy to move into a small home that Roy had purchased for them. Well, nice. Still, Cindy kept the secret from her family overseas and made up stories to get out of visiting them in the summer of 66. Cindy and Roy were married in December of that year. Cindy had told her parents by phone call and letter that she was getting married mm. and who she was marrying. Otto loathed Roy as a divorced, perverted, grown-up, taking advantage of his little girl. Yeah. Not a good way to start out uh, with your uh, father-in-law. Oh, there. no, no. Especially as you're almost the same age. That would be rough. Cindy convincingly read Roy a scathing letter about them she claimed came from her mother. But a few days later, she admitted that she'd written the letter herself. Although he thought it was odd, Roy thought Cindy was just being melodramatic and left it alone. Bad case of the vapors. Over the, over the years, the usual things went on between the couple, financial struggles and petty disagreements. Cindy could be histrionic at times and overly emotional about the smallest things. Something was amiss, though. Cindy had a phobia of water, so much so that she wouldn't even wade in a pool. Roy Makepeace, however, loved boating, and Cindy would go along to please him, gripping the rails for dear life. Over the years, Cindy began turning more and more inward. She would avoid contact with Makepeace, who, thinking he should be comforting, felt rejected. Yeah, I can understand. Cindy would cry and scream for him to leave her alone. Cindy began telling people that Roy was regularly beating her. Although Roy denied ever beating Cindy, he did say he'd slapped her with an open hand out of frustration on two occasions over 16 years. Still not okay, Roy. No, no. Lashing out at someone violently is an attempt to blame the other person for the feelings that you chose to indulge in yourself. It's a brutal deflection of personal responsibility. I know this from personal experience from many years ago when dealing with my own rage. Yeah, that's some great uh, observation there, Mike. Tensions rose between Cindy and Roy and their marriage. Sounds like it. <laughs> yeah. Cindy had left nursing and begun to work with, quote, emotionally disturbed patients. And that's what they would call people with mental problems okay. in that day. Okay. 
eventually being hired as the director at Blenheim House, a facility for children with emotional problems. Although her marital troubles were not immediately evident at work, Cindy and Roy separated on Canada Day in 1982 after 16 years of marriage. Cindy moved into her own place at 334 East 40th Street, just down the street from Vancouver's biggest graveyard, the Mountain View Cemetery. Cindy had never really lived alone prior to breaking up with Roy. That's an interesting graveyard as well. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating. Yeah, actually. it really is. There's something I find quite fascinating with graveyards. I love graveyards. Yeah. I used to work in one. Another story, another <laughs> day. It was after this move that Cindy began to suffer at the hands of an unseen assailant. Her living hell was about to begin. It started with a phone call three months after she moved in. Here's where we'll take a break. It all started on October 7, 1982, with a ringing phone. On the other end, according to Cindy's report, was a man who knew Cindy's first name, repeating it throughout the call as he made threats to tear her apart in obscene sexual terms. Cindy hung up. Immediately, the phone was ringing again. She picked up the receiver. This time, no words, just heavy breathing. Over the next few days, Cindy received more calls, all she presumed from the same man. After one heavy breathing call, Cindy felt she was being watched and pulled the drapes to her windows closed. Minutes after closing the curtains, the phone rang again. The voice said, Don't think pulling the drapes means I don't know you're in here, Cindy. Another call and a direct threat on Cindy's life. You're dead, Cindy. On October 12th, she'd had enough. Cindy called the cops. Ooh, intense. No kidding. Wow. What a what a beginning. Yeah. And this is what she would endure for the next six and a half years on and off. <laughs> the attending VPD officer looked around the yard and found nothing out of the ordinary. He told Cindy to keep track of anything she might see or hear outside to keep a written log of the calls if they continued. He also told Cindy she should call BC Tell and get an unlisted phone number. Mm, BC Tell. Yeah, back in the day. Yeah, yeah. Right after the cop left another phone call, Cindy told the man she'd called the police and lied that her phone was being tapped. I'll get you, said the man. The voice is not making the chills on my back uh, any less, Mike. What, what voice? Exactly. Yeah. The one's in my head. <laughs> the next night, the harassment continued. The man said, so you think calling the cops will keep you safe? Just wait. Wow. Yeah. Before Cindy hung up, the man began to describe his genitals to her and what he wanted to do to her with them. I could not imagine how that would feel. Awful? Yeah. Well, I mean, having never had it occur, like you just sit there and go Scary. like, yeah, like how terrified would one be? Later that night, Cindy was trying to sleep. She thought she heard someone fiddling with the back door. She called police who attended but were unable to find any evidence of a burglar. The phone kept ringing as Cindy kept answering. One time, 
a detective, Boyer Smith, even picked up one of the no-talk calls when he was at Cindy's home investigating. Hmm, okay. On October 15th, Cindy came home to a broken window at the rear of her house. Someone had been inside, she felt. The back and front doors were found unlocked and ajar. Nothing was disturbed and nothing was missing as far as Cindy could see. You see, like, so I've been binging some Oscar series, and this is exactly the stuff that I'm seeing on that show Yeah, in, in every case. Like, it's crazy, like, how you go, To oh, make wow. you go crazy. Yeah. That's that's part of it. There's many, many reasons, but, like, this is all the stuff that happens. A few days later, Cindy and a friend, Agnes, arrived to find the front door ajar again. Oh, uncomfortable. A large male neighbor went into the house room to room and found nothing. Cindy and her pal entered. After going into the bedroom to change, Cindy screamed. Her friend ran in to find Cindy pointing toward her pillow, which had been slashed to bits. (laughs) Chills. A key to fit the front door was found on the floor next to Cindy's bed. They left the house and called police. My goodness. One officer began attending regularly. He was an eight-year veteran named Pat McBride. (laughs) The calls continued intermittently, even though Cindy had changed her number. Sometimes there were multiple calls in a day, then none for days at a time. Mm. Cindy said to friends that it was driving her crazy. Yeah, and it would literally drive you crazy. Yeah. The constant anxiety and, and, and fear. Cindy's neighbor had seen a man at least three times around Cindy's house even seeing him run off when he exited his own home to confront the intruder. So there's some seemingly credible uh, support. Mm-hmm. Who was this? Uh, was it you? It wasn't me. Well, then I don't know. Cops had investigated Cindy's estranged husband, Roy Makepeace, but he did not match the description of the intruder. Hmm. Also, Roy and Cindy were getting along a bit better, even to the point of dating one night a week. Oh, that's nice. He seemed as concerned as Cindy was. The phone was not the only means of communication. Cindy began to find notes using letters clipped and glued together from newspapers and magazines, something like you'd see in ransom notes in movies or TV. (laughs) That's exactly what I was thinking. The messages kept the same violent tone. You're dead. And soon, Cindy. Or a jumble of words like knife, mangled, dead, and even Merry Christmas. Jeez. Days after the first note was found, Cindy invited Constable McBride to move into her spare room. He did. That's that, very unusual for... Um, I mean, we're still, we're talking about the early 80s, but still, that is, yeah, I don't feel comfortable with that. It seems like a conflict of interest, for sure. It does. I could see the benefit from her side. I have a police officer who lives here, but yeah, yeah, that, hmm, okay. Police began going past Cindy's house more regularly day and night when McBride was on shift. In November of 1982, McBride was going to move out. An officer checking up on Cindy found her phone line was dead. It had been cut. Hmm. McBride found wire clippers on the top of his own toolbox in his bedroom, and he couldn't recall placing them there. Interesting. What he thought next is what may have planted a seed of doubt in his mind about the veracity of Cindy's claims. Had she done this herself? Hmm. There was never any evidence linking any suspects to all the harassments. No one ever saw a face other than Cindy, and she later described that face to a composite artist, but no suspects were ever found matching that description. Cindy didn't seem the type to do that kind of thing. 
Yeah, no, doesn't seem like it. McBride was liking Cindy more and more on a personal and sexual level as well. Mm-hmm. After he moved, they even dated for a time. In December, police found Roy Makepeace parked in the laneway behind Cindy's house. This is her ex-husband. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He said he was there to protect Cindy, but claimed she was unaware of his presence. Hmm, that's all odd. But uh, he was con- he's claimed he was concerned. I can understand that. I'm less concerned about Roy Makepeace parking in the back and keeping an eye than I am with Pat McBride moving in. But, in- interesting, uh, right? Yeah. Roy asked Cindy to move back in with him. Oh. You know, come yeah. on back home, Cindy. Let's patch things up kind of thing. Well, and it could just be like, you know, he's he's very concerned about her. She declined at points. She believed Roy was behind the calls and notes. Mm. She didn't trust him anymore. Cindy decided it was time to move. Yeah, good call. Days before her move on January 27, 1983, Cindy's friend Agnes found her collapsed and dazed on the basement stairs of Cindy's home. Hmm. She was bleeding from vicious slashes to both arms and legs. Wow. The police and ambulance came. She had been sliced 14 times with a scalpel or razor. One cut was 10 centimeters long, and she had bled a lot. Oh, wow. The police questioned Cindy, but she claimed she did not see the attacker's face. Hmm, okay. Police thought for sure it was Makepeace, the estranged husband, but had zero evidence other than the usual speculation. Although Roy agreed to take a polygraph, the operator refused to administer the test as Makepeace's heart meds would give improper readings. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that they would do that. Cindy herself took two polygraph tests at that time as well, and she failed both. Hmm, okay, wow. This indicates deception, but does not negate her story entirely. And, as all true crime fans know, polygraphs are inadmissible in court. Yep. Cindy later confided to her brother Doug that she was holding back. The attacker had grabbed her from behind, holding a knife to her throat, and told her that if she tried to see his face, her family would pay. Why not just put on a balaclava or something? Cindy claimed she'd been drugged by her assailant. She said she felt a pinprick in her shoulder when the attack began and felt woozy after that. There was no evidence of drugs in her system other than what she had been taking for anxiety. Yeah, yeah. But you would think, uh, thinking out loud here, you would think that if it was her ex, Roy Makepeace, you would recognize his voice. You would think. I would think. When police were watching closely, even for weeks on end, nothing happened. But when they weren't looking, the calls, notes, and other odd things took place. Hmm. Mail went missing, doors were mysteriously unlocked, exterior light bulbs were removed, and on and on. Cindy moved with Heidi, her dog, renting a small house closer to work on Blenheim and 14th. Hmm, nice area. Indonesia sounded like a far enough place to escape for a while, so Cindy went on vacation. Hmm. In 1983, spring and summer were almost uneventful until August 22nd. This is when one of the creepy notes showed up. This time it was at Blenheim House where Cindy worked. Hmm. In the signature cut-and-paste letter style, it said, Welcome back, death, blood, love, hate. <sighs> Picture myself walking up to my house and seeing that. And also now it's at work too. So yeah, like, oh yeah, like, yeah. What's going on? These yeah. kids are vulnerable. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. McBride was also pursuing Cindy at this time, but she had rebuffed him, declining his offer of marriage. <laughs> they did remain friendly though. On October 15th, 1983, Cindy found a dead cat on the lawn of her home. Uh, there was a noose around the cat's neck. 
Next to it, a note reading ominously, You're next. Oh, jeez. After that, Cindy wanted protection. She was introduced to Ozzy Caban of Caban Security. And Ozzy is a specifically colorful character in the security industry. Oh, yeah? I uh, think I met him once when I used to work for another security company. Okay. He's an interesting cat. <laughs> Ozzy has done security for Hollywood stars like Jane Fonda, Frank Sinatra, and Goldie Hawn. Okay, some top stars. He's also done protection detail for dignitaries like Queen Elizabeth II and Pierre Trudeau, father of our current yeah, PM. Yeah, yeah, interesting stuff. His company is still in business today. Ozzy's got to be in his 80s, though, so I'm not sure if he participates very much. Mm. Ozzy got a call about something happening at Cindy's house, and he attended. He peeked through the window after repeated knocks on the door went unanswered. Ozzy saw Cindy laying face down in her hallway. Oh, uh, concerning. Ozzy had his office call police, and he kicked the door in himself. Ozzy found Cindy with a paring knife sticking out of the back of her hand. Oh, the knife was holding a note to Cindy's hand as though it was some kind of macabre corkboard. Okay, very interesting stuff here. The note read, Now you must die. Punctuated by a word that begins with C that we don't use on dark poutine. Yeah, yeah, I think we can. Yep. Ozzy called the ambulance. Cindy felt clammy to the touch and he thought she might be dead at first until he noticed her breathing. Paramedics cut off a black stocking that had been tied tightly around Cindy's neck. She even suggested that Roy Makepeace may be using voodoo to do this to her. Okay. The police thought that was kind of crazy, but who was it? They interviewed Roy Makepeace. Pat McBride's arrival in Cindy's life coincided with the beginning of her harassment, so he was given a polygraph himself and passed. Okay. Cindy was given a third polygraph at this time when she was asked if she was doing this to herself. And whether she had stabbed herself in the hand, she answered no emphatically both times. This time, the results of the polygraph indicated that Cindy was being truthful. Hmm. So, I mean, she's had two failed and one truthful. I mean... It means nothing. Well, I mean, you could say that she learned from the first two, but, or, yeah, or the first two were wrong. It was very fascinating. After that attack and subsequent ones, Ozzy too became frustrated. He told Cindy she had to stop holding back and tell him everything. He felt she never really did tell him everything that was going on. Interesting. Again, cops would watch the house for days on end. Nothing happened while they were watching. Yeah. As soon as they'd packed up their toys and gone home, the attacks, verbal and physical, would resume. Which, I mean, is quite suspicious. The letters, phone calls, and dead cats continued. So there was more than one dead cat. I hate that you had to write that. I I hated that too because I love kitties. Yeah, I know you do. Call trace technology at the time was limited and the calls were too short to make a proper trace. Cindy, threatening suicide, was even placed in Lionsgate Hospital under the Mental Health Act using the name Cindy Jacobs to protect her identity. Yeah, well, if you're being stalked and harassed, yeah. She was released five days later into her brother Doug's care. Still, the harassment continued. Still, there was no evidence as to who was doing this. The first week of July 1985, 16 RCMP officers set up 24-hour surveillance of Cindy's home. Oh, wow. Cindy was aware of this. Yeah. Nothing happened the whole week. (sighs) Okay. But the day after they left, the calls began again. (sighs) Is it a cop? I want to say 
that no, she's doing this, but then again, yeah, it could be a cop or the person is just keeping a close somebody eye on things. Somebody in the know. Yeah, or just somebody who's just observing and, and seeing it. Yep. Cindy moved again, this time to Richmond at 5400 Blundell Road. On December 5th, 1985, Cindy was found dazed and wandering in a ditch along the roadside of 16th Avenue on the heavily wooded UBC endowment lands known as Pacific Spirit Park. The park is not only a place of natural beauty, but it has a long history of violence as well. More recently, nine years ago, Wendy Ladner Boudry was jogging along a trail in the park and was brutally murdered and left there. Her yet unsolved slang may one day be a full episode of Dark Poutine. Yeah, that's such a such an odd one and so sad. I, I remember while it was happening. The park also has its own ghost. Oh. Apparently, the specter of a lone young woman hitchhiking will flag down cars. She'll hop in the back. When the driver turns around to speak to the girl in the back, she's gone. Oh, I want to hear more about that. Yeah, that's... Uh, oh, I love that stuff. Well, uh, that's yeah. one of Vancouver's hauntings. Oh. oh. Halloween's coming. Squeak. Yep. Cindy was found standing in the cold water of the ditch near hypothermic. Her rescuers, passing cyclists, found a black stocking wrapped three times tightly around her throat. So like the time in her house with the stocking uh, notes stabbed through her hand. Cindy was wearing a large man's rubber boot on one foot and nothing on the other. She had one black rubber glove on and a black woolen toque was nearby as well as the match to the glove. How bizarre. There were scratches on Cindy's breast. She had lacerations on her fingers. She had a black eye, abrasions on her knees, a bruise around her neck and a needle mark on her inner elbow. Her clothes were torn, dirty, and disheveled. Huh. Cindy didn't know what had happened to her or how she'd gotten to where she was. She'd gone out for lunch and then remembered nothing after that. I don't even know what to say. Cindy claimed she'd taken Ativan earlier in the day and tests showed just that. Yeah, okay. Doctors considered she may have amnesia due to severe psychological strain. The reports I've read do not make a mention of the amount of Ativan that was in Cindy's body, though. Yeah. And I personally have some experience with lorazepam and blackouts. I, I've had to take, uh, over the last couple of years, a fair amount of uh, Ativan. If misused. Uh, yes. That's some pretty heavy. There are, there are multiple hours missing from my life <laughs> due to misuse of yeah. Ativan. Yeah. On at least one occasion. I can imagine. Police were starting to roll their eyes with every new Cindy incident. The RCMP Major Crimes Unit took over Cindy's case, so perhaps hypnosis would uncover the memories that Cindy seemed to be suppressing. Here's some exclusive audio from BCTV reporting on the hypnosis sessions and their aftermath. In 1984, Hal Booker hypnotized Cindy four times to draw out information. What she revealed under hypnosis portrayed her ex-husband as a killer. Do you have any doubt that it was real to Cindy? I have no doubt in my mind. I can't see why she would make it up. It was on a boating trip to Buccaneer Bay in July 1981. James said she saw Roy make peace, dismember two bodies in a log cabin, rub their blood on her face and tell her it would be dangerous to talk about what she saw. These are excerpts from a taped phone call arranged by police in a bid to generate some activity in this case. With the help of hypnosis, I've been able to remember a lot of why things are happening and um, what happened four years ago. I wanted to talk to you um, before letting the police 
Well, you must know that this cannot go on indefinitely. What cannot go on? The harassment, for one. Are you attributing that to me? Are you denying it? My God. I am certainly denying it. I always have denied it. I have absolutely nothing whatever to do with it. But I warn you, if you keep harassing me, you have to take the consequences because it is all entirely unfounded. Roy, that isn't going to work anymore. I'm not insane. We both know that you have been doing it. My God, boy, you make that statement in public and I'll have you in court. Could you give me any reason whatsoever why you make that accusation? That's a bold claim. Roy was livid vehemently denying any involvement in any such activity. Yeah. Of course. Yeah, yeah. He was ready to divorce Cindy. Wait a minute. They hadn't been divorced up until just separated? Just still separated. <laughs> okay. All right. Cindy went to Germany for the rest of December and into January of 1986. In March of 86, the divorce from Roy was final. There were no incidents at all until April 2nd, 1986, when a rear window was removed from her house in apparent B&E, setting off the alarm. Well, you're removing a window, will do that. Again, no suspects. Richmond yeah. RCMP attended. They had been briefed by Vancouver police prior to Cindy's move, and they seemed to have already determined she was the culprit and left after only taking notes. Yeah, I mean, I try to be as objective as possible, and I can... I can... Whether it's right or wrong, I can understand a, a bias in the officer's side. Cindy was terrified all over again. The move had not worked. Her friend Agnes Woodcock and her husband Tom began staying overnight to give Cindy more security and allow her to get some sleep. That's nice friends. The Woodcocks were there when the next thing happened. Uh-oh. On April 15th, after everyone, in, after everyone was in bed, sometime after midnight... Cindy woke Tom Woodcock up saying she'd heard a thump and the dog barking. As he stepped into the hallway, Tom smelled smoke. They noticed a glow outside, and on investigating, they saw flames coming from the downstairs window. Oh. Cindy tried to call 911, but the phone was dead. The panic button that Ozzy Caban had installed for her didn't work either. Hmm. They got Heidi the dog and themselves out and ran to a neighbor, pounding on the door, asking them to call 911. And obviously the fire department came. Yes. Witnesses said that the Woodcocks were clearly upset, but Cindy was calm until police arrived and then began to cry and scream. <sighs> wow, because I mean... Her behavior doesn't do her any favors at points. You know, and, and if you're trying to be analytical, there's no reason why she couldn't have gone out and started it, come back in and woke up her friends who were there. So, I mean, whew. Cindy moved into a hotel and was quickly evicted by her landlord who'd had enough. Oh. Investigators believe Cindy was the cause of the fire that started near her memorabilia, and these were pictures and mementos from her life. Hmm. The Woodcocks, though, didn't believe that Cindy would ever jeopardize their lives in that way. Where I'm struggling is, like, again, my gut is telling me that, that she's just doing this, but after watching all these shows that I've been watching, it's like, okay, no, like, crazy things like this do happen. On the 3rd of May, Cindy cracked. She couldn't take it anymore, and she told her doctor that she wanted to die. Cindy was diagnosed with major depression, and she was hospitalized. Yeah, if this is legit and actually happening to her, I can understand what this would do to one psyche. 
Cindy was admitted as suicidal to the psychiatric unit at St. Paul's Hospital on Burrard Street in downtown Vancouver. From there, she was quickly transferred to Riverview Psychiatric Hospital on Lowheat Highway in Coquitlam. That facility was better prepared to assist Cindy at the time, and she underwent a litany of psychiatric testing and analysis over the next two weeks. Yeah, it's a big facility. It was one of the top uh, uh, psychiatric places. From Ian Mulgrew's book, Who Killed Cindy James?, Senior psychologist Ken Durkle's report found Cindy to be much higher than normal intellectually and verbally. So she was smart. Yeah. But also in six areas of concern with comments after each in order of significance. Before we get started, we want to make sure that our listeners know some of these psychiatric terms are antiquated and no longer used. I'm curious to hear. Quote, number one, hysteria specifically lacks insight, self-centered, demanding attention and affection. Number two, paranoia, suspicious, resentful, sensitive, and rigid. Mm. Number three, schizophrenia, no comment. That's a pretty heavy uh, illness. Number four, psychopathic, poor judgment, immature, manipulative. Number five, psychasthenic, anxious, worried, ruminative, obsessive. And psychasthenia, a term no longer used in psychology, is a psychological disorder characterized by phobias, obsessions, compulsions, or excessive anxiety. Oh, okay. And six, hypochondriasis, narcissistic, pessimistic, critical, and demanding. Uh, Yeah. End quote. So not things that weigh in her favor. No. Durkle's summary was that tests revealed, quote, a picture of a paranoid schizophrenic with high levels of anxiety and depression overlaid on a passive-aggressive compulsive personality Psychotic features are evident. The theme of abandonment and rejection seem important in the light of psychotic symptoms first occurring at the time of her marriage breakdown. Hmm. End quote. Very interesting. The diagnosis threw the veracity of Cindy's claims into serious question. Durkhol was essentially saying that although Cindy believed what she was saying, it was all in her head. Yeah, okay, I can, I can relate. Cindy's friends and family continue to believe her, though. The Cindy they knew would not make these things up. Yeah. Cindy was deemed no longer a suicide risk on May 20th, 1986 and released. After a six-month hiatus from work, Cindy was told that she'd have a year to retire from her job at Blenheim House. She could continue on sick benefits until the year was up, but she didn't have to come in. They needed someone they could rely on for the important position. Yeah, I I get it. Uh, Yeah. But, okay. That was another devastating blow for Cindy, obviously. Understandably. She moved twice in 1986, settling at 8220 Clay Smith Road in Richmond in November. She'd gone to work another nursing job at Richmond General. This is when Cindy also changed her name from Cynthia Elizabeth Makepeace to Cindy James. Okay. A fresh start? Yeah, exactly. Seemed like that for a time until June of 1987 when Cindy's alarm went off. The police said it was probably the wind. Oh, okay. In August and September, there were three more reported B&E attempts, smashed windows, etc. No suspects. Mm -hmm. In February of 1988, another smash window set off an alarm. Cindy claimed there had been others over the previous week that she hadn't reported. I guess why bother? She wasn't taken seriously anyway. Yeah, absolutely. On the 11th of October, 1988, Roy Makepeace received a call to his answering machine. It said, 
Cindy Dead Meat Soon, and here's actual audio of that call. So Makepeace, Roy Makepeace got this on his answering machine, okay. That is correct. All right. Police and Roy thought it was Cindy changing her voice to sound ominous. You know, I'm not going to lie. I, it did sound like it was... Uh, a woman's voice. Yeah, it did. But perhaps this person who is harassing her has an accomplice that's a female. I don't know. Yeah, I, it it can happen. Uh, or if you listen to the Eron's audio yeah, yeah. of the phone calls that he made... yeah. Sometimes that sounds like a female's voice as well. Interesting. Yeah. It wasn't. It was apparently him talking through his teeth. Oh, okay. On the 26th of October, Cindy pushed Ozzy Caban's panic button, bringing police. Cindy was found half in and half out of her open driver's side car door, nude from the waist down. A black nylon stocking was around her neck and she'd been hogtied. Her hands and feet were behind her back with a second stocking. Yeah, so like, that's like how, I don't know how one could do that to themselves. Cindy was in and out of consciousness for hours since being grabbed from behind when exiting the car and rendered unconscious. She remembered nothing of the attack, even though a knot expert looking at Cindy's bonds determined that she could not have tied the knots herself. Still, investigators thought that Cindy was somehow the author of this attack as well. Oh, okay. That was, uh, hmm. Yeah, that because that seems like it would be extremely difficult to to do to oneself. The Woodcocks moved in again for a time and Cindy's family stepped up to see her through her recovery from this trauma. Good, good. The Woodcocks moved out again in March of 1989. Things seemed to have settled down. On April 8th, a note was found on Cindy's car in the parking lot of Richmond General. It read, Soon, Cindy. <sighs> Later that night in the condensation on her windshield was another message, Sleep well. The alarm in Cindy's home went off four times through April until the last one on the 10th of May, 1989. Cindy completed her last 12-hour shift on May 24, 1989 at Richmond General and left for a stretch of five days off. That's a nice stretch. After a brief conversation with the man who'd been renting Cindy's downstairs apartment on the afternoon of May 25, 1989, Cindy was not conclusively ever seen alive again. Oh, the Woodcocks finding Cindy's home empty for their bridge date at 10 p.m. that night were immediately concerned. Yeah, after everything happening. Yeah. Yeah, understandably concerned. Perhaps something really bad had finally happened. Yeah, exactly. They knew Cindy had shopped at the Safeway on Number 2 Road in Blundell and drove there to investigate. Sure enough, there was Cindy's car. There was dried blood on the handle of the driver's side door. Wow, okay. RCMP were called in, treating the car like a crime scene. A receipt showing Cindy had deposited her paycheck at 7.58 p.m. was under the car. Hmm. From Who Killed Cindy James? They broke into the car and cataloged its contents. Four Safeway grocery bags of groceries were piled on the front passenger seat and the floor. Cindy's black purse was between the bags on the seat. Inside were two sets of car keys, a set of house keys, $277 in cash, a check register showing that night's deposit, and a June 1st mortgage debit of $885.50. The balance was $294. No checks were missing. Hmm. Wow. So not robbery. Everything, money is still Everything's there. Everything's there. Yeah. Uh, but the groceries were in there, so it happened after shopping. Yeah. 
A child's croquet game was in the back seat as well, and this was most likely a gift for an upcoming eight-year-old's birthday who was happened to be a friend's son. Yeah, okay. All of this looked highly suspect, obviously, like no one just leaves their groceries in their car and disappears. No, no. A manager of the bank who himself had come to grab some cash at the ATM that night reported seeing a blonde matching Cindy's description take a few steps in the parking lot at around 8.01 p.m. Hmm. Roy Makepeace was interrogated that night, but had witnesses to his movements. He was cleared in the disappearance. Mm-hmm. The media was notified, and Otto Hack, Cindy's dad, acted as media liaison over the next weeks, hmm. as Cindy remained missing. Yeah, yeah. That's got to be tough for a dad. Cindy was found exactly two weeks later on June 9th, 1989, in the brush near an abandoned party house on the 8100 block of Blundell near Number 3 Road very close to where she'd been seen last, about hmm. just over a mile. Yeah, okay. Cindy was dead. Oh. Here's some more exclusive audio from BCTV, thanks to Global. A Richmond Road construction crew made the grisly discovery shortly after noon. The find was made when a Works Department employee walked just a few yards off Blundell Road to relieve himself in a vacant lot. He called out to a fellow worker to confirm the find. The hands, uh, the hands were behind her back, strapped to her feet, strapped her tied feet. to her feet with a rope or a cord, and uh, the face was totally black. You couldn't recognize the face. You could see the hair. The hair was blonde. Did it just look like it had been dumped there or carefully arranged in there or covered? Uh, no, it was laying in, just under the shrubbery, wide open. Yeah. Okay. The chap that went in there to, to uh, relieve himself, uh, he spotted it and, uh, you know, it was very visible, really, when he went in there. Not much of an effort to conceal the body? No, no, no. The body of the blonde woman was clothed in brown slacks, a pink blouse, and shoes. She lay on her side. Her wrists and ankles were bound tightly behind her back. She was again hogtied in the way she had been months previous with a black stocking. Her left shoe was a few meters away and her right shoe barely hung on. A black stocking was tight around her neck, but due to mummification in the warm, dry summer sun, it was indeterminate whether she had been strangled. Cindy's jacket lay nearby. There were slashes and cuts to her blouse, but no cuts to Cindy's skin underneath. Mm. A puncture wound was noted on the inside of Cindy's arm at the elbow, consistent with an injection. Which she has said has happened before, and the marks found. Yeah. Constable Jerry Anderson, assigned to the case, suspected it was Cindy right away. But due to decomposition, a positive ID would not be possible until the autopsy. Mm. Yeah, two weeks in, in the sun. Yeah. There was a man living in a blue van behind the house, only feet away from where Cindy's body was on the other side of a make- makeshift corrugated tin fence. Okay. He claimed he'd seen, he'd neither seen nor detected anything even though he cooked his food only two meters from where Cindy was found. Oh, sure. Yeah. The man living in the van was later cleared as a suspect in Cindy's disappearance. Okay. All right. I'll take that for what it's worth. The autopsy determined that this was definitely Cindy James, but her cause of death would have to wait for toxicology reports to come back as Mm. what they found was inconclusive. Yeah, okay. Oddly, police discovered that two days after Cindy's disappearance, an older-sounding man with an English accent had called Cindy's insurance company, asking about her life insurance policy. Um. As it was not okay to discuss a client's policy over the phone, the man was told to come in person to the office. Yeah, yeah. He never came. 
Cindy's father, Otto, was questioned about this call but denied ever making it. Initially, Cindy's death was investigated as a possible homicide. However, things began to point back towards Cindy again, according to police. Hmm. This time, the knot expert decided these knots would have been easily tied by Cindy. He demonstrated the technique. The toxicology tests came back. There had been enough flurazepam, a drug she'd been prescribed for insomnia in Cindy's system to have killed her. Hmm. Police said that it would be, quote, unlikely someone could ingest that amount of the drug involuntarily. Yeah, how, what an interesting conclusion to... Unlikely. Yeah. It doesn't say impossible or even improbable. Yeah. It says unlikely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The death of this pretty nurse was a media sensation, and it was covered on many TV and radio programs like Current Affair, W5, Unsolved Mysteries did a a, a great episode on it. Yep. Oh, wow. And it's been covered by many, many podcasts. My favorite is uh, Robin Warder's coverage of it on his podcast, The Trail Went Cold. Mm -hmm. Was it murder or was it suicide? (sighs) Was Cindy stalked, as she claimed, and eventually murdered? Did she somehow do this to herself? (sighs) Cindy's dad, Otto Hack, spoke with BCTV soon after her death, defending Cindy. Kind, considerate, lovable, always caring for people, wouldn't harm a fly. This is what really saddens us, that this should happen, whether it was a matter of uh, trying to drive her out of her mind or what it is to, to, to really harass somebody to that extent. Our own theory is that she knew something that she was not uh, prepared to reveal. An inquest was ordered, and a year later it began. The proceedings were, at the time, the longest and most expensive in the history of B.C. There were 80-plus witnesses who testified over the course of three months. Cindy's multiple harassment calls and the grisly details of her death were reported widely. Even after all this, the inquest concluded that Cindy's death resulted from an, quote, unknown event, and the cause of her death was classified as undetermined. Author Neil Hall, a Vancouver Sun reporter, spoke about the case after. This is probably the most baffling case that I've ever come across. One that's kept me awake at nights. I know anybody who's come across this case, the jurors, the coroner's people, police officers who I've talked to, everybody has lain awake at night thinking, can this be? Can somebody have done this to themselves? Can somebody be out there lurking still and have never been caught? Hmm. Uh, Neil Hall's book, The Deaths of Cindy James, was also an invaluable investigative tool for this podcast as well. So thank you, Neil, for writing that. It was great. Mm, Yeah, yeah. A couple of years after Cindy's death, according to some reports, Constable Pat McBride was convicted of two counts of sexual assault. Oh. I couldn't find anything corroborating uh, in the news. Okay. But it it seems to be all over the websites about this about this case so perhaps this is that one thing that may or may not be true in this podcast yeah okay okay however they say he was later cleared regarding cindy's death (sighs) but was he the intruder although he was clear to cindy's death like maybe it was him peeking into cindy's windows as seen by her neighbors (sighs) it's all so uh he was a police officer was this why the harassment would stop while the police were looking more closely It's definitely one of the possibilities. Yeah. Remember early on, there was a detective who had taken one of the no-talk calls himself. Yeah. 
And I don't know how that came about, whether Cindy was in the room or not at the time. Mm-hmm. Maybe she knew how to make her phone ring. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. But who knows? I mean, there's a bunch of unanswered questions here. Yeah. To this day, Cindy's family still believes she was murdered, led by her younger sister, Melanie Hack, who even wrote a book called Who Killed My Sister? My Friend. I reached out to Melanie for comment, but I haven't gotten any response as of this recording. Mm-hmm. And if you're listening, Melanie, I hope we did Cindy some justice here. It's tough, man. It's tough because it's impossible for everybody listening to not have their own opinion on And this. plus, none of us ever met Cindy. Yep. We don't know yep. what she was like as a person. We don't know what she actually went through. We weren't there. Nope. And and all, and this is what I've noticed about a lot of these sites is people will just say, she did to herself and that's the end of it. Yeah, yeah. But how the, excuse my French, how the heck do they know? That's the beauty and the downside uh, of the internet age. Uh, You know, like I said, I I have my opinions on this. I I have what I think, uh, I suspect what I think happened but it's one of those cases where it it, honestly if it went either way if we someday we found out that there was somebody who was doing this it was pat mcbride or somebody and you would go okay no i get it now it all makes sense but then if there was some kind of concrete proof to the other way you'd be like yeah okay sure yeah like that's what makes these so challenging especially with one of the most expensive inquests happening in BC's medical history and still inconclusive. Yeah, yeah. It's crazy. Well, you know, the late 80s wasn't that long ago, but technology-wise, incredibly different. If that was, you know, now there's cameras all over the place. Maybe they could have tracked her from Safeway to, you know, but it's a different time, and so it's not as easy to, to, to corroborate everything. So that's it for the story of Cindy James. I think that was pretty fascinating. Yeah, I, I got to say I'm biased because, you know, I'm on the podcast, but um, I have read up a lot on this over the last couple of years. And this is my favorite uh, synopsis of the case. Um, I like that you covered her origin story for the most part, you know? like I could have got into it a little deeper, but... Well, you got to be able to make things somewhat concise and so uh but i i like i always like to kind of know the person and you do that often in your uh in your research is you kind of you start from early age you you know and and that's something that because that's what makes a human yes and that's what i quite enjoy as opposed to just kind of picking up right from the case yeah so i i, I quite uh, so for me even though i'd already known a lot about this uh though there was a lot of new stuff in there for me and so uh, well well done Mikey thank you before we go we want to give some shout outs to our new Patreon patrons amazingly they're still coming which is fantastic these people you're great Stephanie DeVrocher from Montreal Quebec hey Stephanie Libby Green from the UK Uh, remember I said somewhere in the UK yeah well she's upped her pledge oh thanks Libby 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 Samantha Weaver from Canton, Ohio. Thank you very much. So many thank you, Samantha. Jeanette Pamelion from Holyoke, Massachusetts. Oh, fantastic. It's like I've been practicing these names, which I actually have. Well, uh, and sometimes that's needed. Yes, especially because I just butcher them. (laughs) Melissa Brunette. 
<laughs> Speaking of butchering. <laughs> Melissa Brunette from Sudbury, Ontario. She upped her pledge. Or is it Brunet? Because there's only one T. Oh, my God. Maybe I'm stumped. Well, Melissa, thank you. Thank you. Beth Cruz from the good old U.S. of A. Woo-woo, Beth, Beth. Jisoo Kim from Flushing, New York. Oh, wow. I don't know why New York, like that, that, you feel like you've made it when people are contributing from New York. New York. Well, you know why, where I feel like we've made it? That's this next one. Jackie Leonard from Fermanagh, Northern Ireland. She upped her pledge. So, oh boy, goodness. You're, you're a cracking good girl, you are. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Now, go through the... Thank you, Jackie. I think you can find on the Embryard that photo of Mike with his uh, hat and his beard. And, uh, just picture that making that accent. Yes. Little leprechaun, Mike. I'm a little leprechaun. Oh, they're always after me, Lucky Charms. Of course they are. Sarah Shake upped her pledge. She must have liked that I didn't mispronounce her name. So she gets two shout outs on two shows in a row. Woo, Sarah. Hey, thanks, Sarah Shake. And Emily Warner from Jackson, New Jersey. I haven't traveled very much in my life, but oddly, New Jersey is one of the places I You went. have been to New Jersey. I, I went to did UFC you see Tony New Soprano while you were there? Yeah, I did. We hung out. I, yeah. did, did he shoot you in the fleshy part of the thigh? He did. Oh, that's nice. I, but I, I kind of, I took it as a badge of honor. That's nice. But yeah, New Jersey. Been there. And my good buddy, and actually Wes A. Weens is my longest fan. Wes has been with me. On and off as a fan for almost 18 years. Wes. He was there when I was scanning my lunch. Oh, Mike, you've shown me that. Yeah. yeah. Wow. When I used to scan my lunch. So if you go to mikebrown.com slash lunch, you can see some of that nonsense there. And I recommend you do it. Wow. Wes, that's dedication, So buddy. thank you, Wes Weens. You are a big time awesome guy. And I hope you got your stickers that I sent you. Yeah. Good on you, buddy. Uh, let's go for coffee sometime soon. Thank you so much to our patrons, past and present, for your pledges. We really appreciate your support of the show. If you want to help support the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. Or for a one-time support, you can send us some donut money via PayPal at our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. We even have a phone number now. You can call us and leave an actual voicemail at a real phone number. That will be on the website, www.darkpoutine.com, and that's where you'll find show notes and other cool stuff. Beep, boop, beep. If you leave us a voicemail and it's funny and not, well, it can even be creepy. I'm totes down with totes creepy. Totes down with creepy. Yeah. And we will play it on the show. Dang right, we will. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Dark Poutine and tell your friends about us. Those five-star reviews on iTunes don't hurt either. <laughs> Especially fun, uh, as we've mentioned numerous times, is our group, the Yumber Yard, which has been so crazy busy. <laughs> yeah. And with new folks, and we're coming up on a thousand people. Yeah, I just, I wanted to give a shout out to uh, a high school friend of mine. I've known her for a long time. She just joined the Yumber, Yumber Yard and loves the poutine and Tila. Well, just wanted to say uh, welcome to the Yumber Yard. And a big shout out to Erica Booth, who is helping oh. us to moderate the Umber Yard now. And I'm looking at uh, adding another one or two moderators as well, because it's become overwhelming. <laughs> it has. It has. Erica, you're the true hero in this group. You're awesome possum. Erica's been with us, I think, since uh, like episode uh, 
well, or early on, early on, early she on. Uh, began listening, and she helped us with the music for Halifax. Halifax Explosion. Yeah. So what what episode was that? That four. Okay. So yeah. Wow. Yeah. She's been with us wow. for quite a while. She's an OG. She is OG. Thanks, Erica. You can subscribe to us on your favorite podcast directory like iTunes Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, or Spotify. Just do it. And do it. Do it now. Sure. Don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye-bye.